Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Today, we're going to look at one of the oldest institutions established in the state of Michigan, not long after 1837 statehood. This is the Michigan State Prison, founded in Jackson. Joining me today is Judy Gale Krasnow, who's the author of a book on the history of the prison, and it's called Jacktown, History and Hard Times at Michigan's First State Prison. Today, we're going to explore some of the early history of the Michigan State Prison, as well as some hard time stories and some fascinating people connected with the institution over the many decades. So welcome to the show today, Judy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm so excited. I've been reading your book, and I've been just so excited to have you on. I was so happy when you had the time available. But could we begin by telling the audience a little bit about yourself? How did you get onto the path of writing this book about the state prison? Well, uh, (laughs) I am a professional storyteller Uh and historical portrayal artist and what is called a Chautauqua scholar. And though I lived 26 years in Miami, Florida, Uh and traveled on the Speakers Bureau of the Florida Humanities Council and the Oklahoma Council and several others, uh, at a certain point, Florida became, in in the housing downfall, um, a very difficult place to live. And I thought, it's time for me to change. And on WDET, National Public Radio, I heard about an old prison in Jackson, Michigan. I knew nobody in Michigan. And I was spellbound by the prospect of living in an artist community in an old prison and I came to see it and I felt (laughs) at home here (laughs) and and I wondered since I do for the most part believe in reincarnation who was I back then (laughs) I chose my apartment from a cell block. They were renovating and tearing out the cells. And on January 5th of 2008, my hand shook as I opened the door to my apartment that I had no idea what it would look like in this old building. I was number 13 to move in. And, uh, What happened with me, there were mostly painters and sculptors and jewelry, glass blowers and so forth. Uh And I ended up being called to the office here because I was studying the history of the old prison wanting to tell stories. Uh And people were coming in here. Oh, what was this place and all? And that turned into a thriving prison tour business. 
buses rolling in and I still study, you know, whatever history this place fascinates me and the people that I have met through the tours Mm -hmm. are you know, relatives or descendants of people who were in the prison as wardens, as prisoners, as guards. Um, It's just been fascinating. So I'm still here 15 years later and um, still fascinated. Are you still giving tours? Uh, I, when I was writing the book... I I turned the tours over mostly to my two um, partners that I had trained in as Mm -hmm. storytellers and so forth. Um, We were a wonderful trio. So the tours, they're still doing them. Oh, okay. Um, And I have written yet another book. And it's all about this project called Armory Arts Village, but it's kind of fictionalized to a degree, but basically the story and the story of the tours. And in that book, there are actual stories that were told to me by former prisoners or wardens or, uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of a mixture of what happened with the artist community mm-hmm. and uh, what I, my life on the tours, which was just absolutely fascinating. I still get calls. I still get letters. I still get articles, uh, you know, about the whole thing and, and from people who were in some way or another related. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just yeah. been, um, but I, and then of course COVID happened. Right, I imagine and that shut you guys down. Yeah. So Jim and Steve are the people who are now doing it, and it's taking time to build up the bus companies. Every well, I don't have to tell you, COVID really. Um, mm-hmm knocked into it so i'm glad the book has been read i'm getting royalties all the time yeah <laughs> so yeah. um i'm glad there's an interest well that's good that's um it's a f- fascinating history now can we talk a little bit about the early selection process of the michigan state prison location in your book jackson wasn't always a sure thing in the beginning would you would that be a fair statement to say That would be a fair statement to say because there literally was a competition Mm -hmm. because in the era which it was then the Industrial Revolution, suddenly old small jails were not serving a purpose and uh, they – the whole idea of a prison was, oh, we can have cheap labor. We'll ah. put factories within the prison walls. And actually, there were two competitors with that. Um, I'm going a little out of Jackson now. But in Auburn, New York, they established what became the basis for the penitentiary. But the wow. name penitentiary came from the Auburn system's 
in the prison walls, factories, putting the prisoners to work as cheap labor. The competitor was in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, with the Pennsylvania Dutch, with the Amish, and with the Quakers, basically. And their prison was called a penitentiary, penance and Ah. penitence. But the difference there is they lived every single prisoner in isolation. Now, they did have a lattice door that light could come in and they could look out. But that was for individual shoemakers and Mm. individual craftsmen. And it just wasn't working in the Industrial Revolution. So when Jackson became Jackson, Michigan, became a state in 1837, the boy governor at the time and the whole state felt we're going to need a penitentiary. Mm-hmm. If we're going to build this state, we're going to need factories. We're going to need cheap labor. And they knew. Ann Arbor, Napoleon, Spring Arbor, you name it. They all, each area knew if they had the penitentiary, they would thrive. Right. So you had to have a minimum of 20 acres for the penitentiary. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was building blocks. And Jackson happened to have a huge uh, sandstone quarry in Spring Arbor. Oh, okay. Now, there was a huge oak forest between Jackson and its, you know, subsequent uh, Spring Arbor. Uh-huh. But that quarry was much larger than Napoleon's. Hmm. And Napoleon said, but we have a quarry and there's no oak forest separating us. We hmm. want the prison. And between Ann Arbor and Jackson, there there was a rumor, there were stories that uh-huh. there was a fight. Who was going to have the university? Mm-hmm. But the university, which Ann Arbor ultimately had back then, had 70 students, all white males, elite, well-to-do, mm-hmm. and seven and 10, excuse me, professors. Right. It was not the Ann Arbor no, <laughs> of today. today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I think today Jackson would have fought hard, perhaps, for yeah. the university. Yeah, but, I mean that's the long game, you know. Obviously, it would have been the big, uh, the big crown jewel would have been grabbed the university. But I can see back then. Yeah, I was told then, that. The, yeah, the, I was told that the four. Crown jewels that you wanted when you became a state is you wanted either the state capital, the state prison, the university, or the insane asylum. Those were like the four things that the cities were fighting for. And in order, the capital was the first, and then the second was the prison, third was the university, and the fourth was the insane asylum. 
Um, yeah. yeah and what happened here in Jackson is, you know, back then there was a lot of marshland uh-huh. and swampland, but they figured um, the downtown was also nearby, and they foresaw factories not only in the within the prison walls, uh-huh. but tunnels built underground, factories in the town, and taking the prisoners to work there wow. also. That was prior to the heyday of labor unions, which I'll get to later. <laughs> what yeah. happened as, as times changed, put it that way. So Jackson but, was able to win the the bidding process or and become the selected prison. It was originally what a f- wooden fort initially, right? Before the they built a fort, um, mm-hmm. and Jackson also, I will say, they had five um, businessmen who each donated a number of acres, and they ended up with almost 40 acres, like 36 acres of land. And so Jackson put in their proposal, not only will we have factories, we will have farms and thus (laughs) be able to service the community and be self-sufficient with our, you know, feeding the prisoners. Right. So they did win, and three of the major um, deciders, also (laughs) the three men in charge, happened to be from Jackson. Uh But um, the fort, in the time of, you know, when the Native Americans were here and there were invasions and, you know, the war... Uh, wars had whatever it was wherever people were they were building forts for protection Uh, so they figured wow that'll work fine Mm -hmm. but it didn't wow (laughs) so they managed there were some escapes at that point right oh it was it was one of the most infamous escapes in any prison history because 12 of the inmates on a foggy June night when the doors, the gates were open for a wagon load of new prisoners these 12 under George Norton had plotted an escape climbing everything how they wouldn't be seen and it was known that several of the guards drank on the job and would Mm. fall asleep so these 12 escaped two were caught almost immediately but the other 10 weren't and with all the forestry that was still here and the big oak forest they were very clever at hiding out but at stealing they stole cattle. They stole whatever they could. They terrorized this entire area <laughs> up through Ann Arbor and so forth. And a farmer, Joseph Vedetto, was sick and tired of his livelihood, his cattle being stolen. 
And he decided he was going to get the Jackson robber gang. And he sat on his porch waiting, knowing one night they'd return with his with two rifles. He figured he could shoot with both hands and get them. Unfortunately, he was not the best shot and it was night and they got him. They didn't kill him, but he was pretty badly wounded. But a neighbor who was a good marksman heard the noise, rounded up a posse, shot George Norton and his accomplice. He injured the accomplice in the leg. Norton was dead, and the gang was uh you know, caught after two years. But they have been likened to the Jesse James gang, Mm. except that they went and stole um, for themselves, not as Jesse James would say, for the poor. (laughs) And um, they've been likened to Florida's um, rice gang, Hmm. And, uh, you know, they're right up there with the treacherous gangs of American history. Wow. So and this was in that, the 1840s or 1850s? That was 1840. Wow. And the, the fort had been built in 1837. Hmm. So at that point... Everyone realized if we're going to have a penitentiary, it cannot be a fort. Right. It has to be a sandstone brick mortar building. And the inmates were set to build their own house of incarceration. They did the bricks. They did the sandstone. And it was fascinating because across the Grand River, which, mm-hmm. you know, was right here, even though it was narrow, they made bridges of logs. And there were the prisoners carrying these heavyweight sandstones and, you know, all of the materials and they'd fall into the water. So finally, they just started walking in the water across And by 1842, it really wasn't fully finished till 1846, they built what we now call at Armory Arts the Grand Gallery, but it was a 12,444-square-foot room with three – it was um, actually four floors, but 328 cells. Wow. Five and a half by four and a half feet. And built so that the front row faced the windows, big, great big windows with bars on them. And then the back of their cell was brick. And then there was an 18-inch walkway. And then another row of cells. So the person in that row would be looking at the brick wall, the back, you know, of the... Other cells, then there were four rows, no ventilation. Oh, my gosh. And no electricity, of course, no plumbing. They had a lidless bucket with the marvelous name of Honey. 
fuck it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> in, in, wow. Um, Ionia, it was called a thunder bucket. Yeah. <laughs> and um, on the tours, we sell little uh, small toy like buckets mm-hmm. with chocolate covered raisins in them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and on it, it says honey bucket. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's good. So one of the individuals that I saw in the book that you devote a lot of time to is an agent named John Morris. Now we're skipping ahead in, in time a little bit. But he had a bit of a reign at the Jackson State Prison. That uh, can we go into a little bit of details of his history because it's pretty uh, brutal uh, period of his time when he was in charge of that place. And uh, it was horrible. And I read, by the way, the entire transcript of his ultimate trial. But I'll uh-huh. start at the beginning with him. Um, he became they the agent they weren't called wardens until the 1870s um the agent served as the person who contracted the factories as well as the person who ran the prison Hmm. so warden but he was called agent john morris the town was so happy he was considered such a kind, friendly, wonderful citizen of the town. Mm-hmm. And appointments were political, who gave the most money to a senatorial campaign or what have you. Right. And he was appointed as the agent. Little did anyone know, and if any of the employees here, the guards or whomever mentioned it, um, <laughs> which they stopped doing for fear, nobody would believe them. It was It's like an abuser, a spousal abuser. And, hmm. you know, the woman's all black and blue and goes to the police, and somehow hmm. the abuser has a way of talking his way out of it and hmm. making... You know, it looked like a liar. That was John Morris. And he would get a dislike just from looking at a person, from, you know, hearing his tone of voice or something. And that person would become on his hit list, shall I say. Uh, So he's a real sociopath. Uh, oh, terrible, terrible. Yeah. And the the punishments at that time were still quite medieval. Uh-huh. But he added even more to the list of whippings. And um, another punishment was um, putting the man's wrists together you know, with chains, mm-hmm. putting a hook under the chain, hoisting it up with a pulley till the prisoner's feet were about a foot off the ground and all his weight, you know, was pulling on his rotocuffs, his shoulders, his wrists, his hands. Mm. Um, he was maimed after such a punishment. 
But added to that, and as I said, whippings with paddles, um, I've got you over a barrel, they would be pushed over a barrel and their hands tied to a pole and whipped um, Hmm. on the raw flesh. But in addition to that, John Morris established, and this, I have to tell you, I saw one of them. My daughter lives in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And when I visit, we went to the castle of Ghent, which formerly was not just a castle, but was a medieval prison. Mm. And I saw some of these things that Morris The others did not use, that John Morris used, and one of them, oh, my God, it was painful just to look at it. It was called the Wooden Horse, and it was eight feet high, and it was two boards put together like a triangle, Mm -hmm. and then on um, legs like a table, but on the very top of it was a two-inch splintered board and the prisoner was hoisted on to that so in effect he sat on a two inch narrow splintered piece of wood and then he had weights chained to his ankles and his arms put behind his back and you know, wrists chained together, and he was put outdoors, sleet, rain, hail, boiling sunshine, it didn't matter the weather. He was put outside sitting on that, and with no clothing except a pair of, you know, shorts they'd give him to wear, for eight hours. Wow. And if he and another inmate got in a brawl, they would be put on that together and their um, necks, you know, their heads, their foreheads would be, um, they'd be tied together so that their faces were right against one another. (laughs) So there was that and the other one, which... (laughs) I happen to live, my apartment is in the West End Wing, uh-huh. which was the second um, cell block to be built because the prison kept growing more and more and more, you know, inmates. And at the end of this, where we have loft apartments, is they didn't take it down. The old iron windows he would Uh chain people up to that iron and there was a fire hydrant at that time near there and he had different sized nozzles and he would they would be totally naked and he would force a guard or if it was someone he hated most he would do it and they would be sprayed with the freezing cold water hydrant which had a lot of pressure and all over their bodies for anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour and they'd start screaming and he would spray them down their throat 
So their vocal cords would be damaged and they would come off literally black and blue and end up in the infirmary for several days. So it got to the point where the employees and a particular doctor who said he didn't care if he lost his medical license, he could not in all conscience Mm -hmm. watch this go on. So he went with a couple of other people who lived in Adrian, Mm -hmm. and they went to a reporter and told him. And the reporter said, I'll come and do an article. But all of us were going to be talking. I'm going to tell Miss, you know, Agent Morris that I'm coming to say how well he's running the prison. Mm-hmm. And I want to see it and talk to the foreman and the factories and everybody. And he informed the people he spoke with, smile. Mm-hmm. Look like we're having a really pleasant talk and they did and then he went and wrote an article of both what he heard and what he saw and John Morris was tried by the Congress there were over 33 prisoner witnesses plus doctors guards etc and he was convicted And he was told he wasn't put in prison, but he was told to get out of Jackson and never return. And he went to Texas, (laughs) which had pretty stringent, uh, you know, laws on prisons and stuff. Nobody knows what became of him, but he did not return to Jackson. That was five years that he tortured people in those fashions unbelievable wow now there was a a period of time that i believe if i'm not correct uh, tell me if it's somewhere in the 1870s they they eliminated it where the judges would turn out sentences for solitary confinement life in prison for some of these severe heinous crimes and they would wind up at jackson and then Basically, the the conditions were just, well, I'll let you describe it. They were put into these dark spaces. Is that? You know, we still um, have them, though. They've had to put in vents and things, you know, with the renovation of the building. Uh Um, The owner of this building buys several uh, historic buildings, and he has the architects keep as much of the history And still making it a pleasant Mm -hmm. place, you know, for people to live. But the downstairs, the basement, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have the bars anymore, the prison bars, but it is where they were put. And Mm. I can tell you the first time when I moved here and I went down there and I went down with a couple of other um, artists who had moved in, mm-hmm. it it really hits you because this solitary. What happened with that is Michigan was the first state ever to outlaw capital punishment. 
Okay. And over 10 times it's come up on the ballot that people could vote capital punishment in again, and depending mm -hmm. on governors who promoted it or not, but the people of Michigan never voted that back. Okay. So what happened is the punishment for somebody who otherwise would get capital punishment when the mm -hmm. law went into effect, no capital punishment in Michigan, the actual law was a person would be confined to solitary for life. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> and 26 I've... prisoners had been confined. And then that was in um, 1846. Okay. And then in 1861... The inspectors, the prison was inspected, and on this round, because another wing, the um, annex, was mm -hmm. being built, they wanted to see every single cell, including solitary. Okay. When the doors to the cells that these people had been confined in since... 1846, we're talking 1861. Yeah. Yeah, they were in there a long time. Some of them were in there a long time, you know. Yes. So um, most, all of them, because of lack of sunlight or any light, mm -hmm. um, their eyes, they were, you know, practically blind. Yeah. Those who had been in for like 15 years or more, mm -hmm. um, they, like, eight of them, they were out of their head. They couldn't talk. Yeah. All they could do was growl and scream. And they were sent um, to the asylum in Traverse City. Mm. And um, the others, several were carried out, six of them, to be taken to the infirmary. They had every kind of malnutrition imaginable. Mm -hmm. And they were carried through the sunlight and died en route to the infirmary. Wow. So the inspectors were so horrified. They went to the legislature. We have to reinstate or, or have for the first time in Michigan capital punishment. Mm -hmm. But again, it was put to a vote and rejected. So what came of it instead is that a prisoner could be imprisoned for life, but right. not in solitary. Right. And they had to be able to eat, you know, the three meals a day, go to the mess hall, etc. Mm -hmm. And the term lifer, He's in for life, mm -hmm. um, originated here as a result of that horrendous wow. solitary confinement. Interesting. Very dark history, but it's um, quite fascinating when you look back at it from a historical perspective, you know. Yeah, it's dark, but then there was some light mm -hmm. um, starting primarily um, in 
the 60s and 70s after the, they got rid of uh, John Morris. Mm-hmm. Right. Because a night keeper, John H. Purvis, yes. was hired. Did you have specific questions about yeah, him? Or I did, I did. When I was actually uh, when I discovered your book, I was I was tipped off to the Nightkeeper's biography that he wrote, and I was looking right. for a copy. And then some, I ended up finding your book, and I got your book instead because I couldn't. His is out of print. I did find a couple of used copies on eBay, and I I didn't order it because they wanted too much for him, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I understand it's a fascinating uh it's a chapter in your book. I haven't gotten to it yet in the book. So tell me a little bit about John Purves. Or, or... He was uh, Jim and Stephen I love talking about him mm-hmm. because he was just amidst the darkness like the John Morrises mm-hmm. came along John H Purvis. Uh And he had been, at age 23, he joined um, Regiment 2-something, I don't remember the exact regiment, but in Ohio. He lived in Ohio. Uh And he joined the Civil War along with his brother James. Okay. And James, after two days, decided he wanted to be the flag bearer and march down the hill you know, at the start of the battle, and he was killed. But Purvis survived seven, not all at once, Mm -hmm. but seven different shootings. Wow. In his ankle, in in the top of his head, in his (laughs) arms, in his chest, and then in his groin. Wow. And um, when... You know, the final shot came, the one that was to his groin. He no longer could fight. But he decided, what am I going to do with my life? And um, a a friend suggested that the Jackson prison was looking for guards and with his training. And he had what they called a gimpy leg. Mm -hmm. And he had to walk with a cane, which normally would you know, eliminate him from being hired as a guard. But his army training and his fortitude at being surviving all these shots and still being, he was six Mm -hmm. foot three and, you know, healthy and his attitude was right. Yeah, so he's a hardened battle battle veteran. Right. He had a wife and three children by then, and they moved right here to Blackstone, right around the corner from Mm -hmm. the prison. And he felt that these punishments don't do anything but make someone who is angry to begin with angrier. Mm. And he said he could read hearts and he knew who were the real what we would call today psychopaths that were just you couldn't penetrate whatever it was and they had to be confined but he saw others who just were in the wrong place in their life at the time Mm -hmm. or you know whatever and that they could with proper um 
attitude be rehabilitated. Yeah. And uh, so he meted out punishments. He became the keeper of the night keepers, the night watch. Mm-hmm. And he had to mete out punishments accordingly. But um, he would really look at why did this man at this particular time do that? Yeah. You know, and he um, he wrote his nightly rounds, which is why, you know, that book uh, was published when this prison closed. They mm-hmm. still were selling it at the one the SPSM and he was um, his stories were just I, I put a couple of them in my book but mm-hmm. I think there are two that are my absolute favorites and yeah. one is the prisoners had to make cigars in the cigar factory but yeah. they were not allowed <laughs> to smoke <laughs> So he comes in one night, and by the way, rats were not a major problem here. Cockroaches, huge cockroaches were. Yeah, wow. So he comes in one night doing his rounds, and right before flicking on his lantern, he smells cigar smoke. And he thought, oh boy, I'm going to have to take this one you know, to solitary Mm -hmm. for three days or whatever. Right. And he flicks on his lamp to go and find the person and sees this sight. Hmm. There is a man holding a cockroach Mm -hmm. that has a string tied around it. And on the back of the cockroach is a lit cigar butt. (laughs) And the guy takes the cockroach... And the puts this cigar, the end of it, in his mouth, takes this big puff and puts the cockroach back down. The cockroach goes running out of the cell. But the <laughs> string was just long enough for the cockroach to get to the next cell where okay. that man picked up <laughs> the <laughs> cigar, took his puff, and of course the other fellow had let go of the string, Mm -hmm. and John Purvis stood there watching this all the way down the line of cells, (laughs) and the cockroach, he said, was working as hard as the prisoners worked in the factories, (laughs) and he said, when he watched this, He said the ingenuity of -hmm. these prisoners in the direst of circumstances to find a moment of pleasure, he turned his lamp off and left. Yeah. And punished no one. Yeah. And stories in he with Hannibal the Bear, Hannibal Edgar Lager, Mm -hmm. who today I'm sure would be diagnosed with some... Um, what do they call it, stage of autism, Um, had no social graces, nothing, but he could read, Purvis could read his heart Mm -hmm. underneath the gruff voice and the hairy arms and head, (coughs) excuse me. Yeah. 
was this decent person, but he broke more jaws. He didn't understand when people spoke to him, he'd misinterpret Mm -hmm. um, their words and think he was being insulted, pick up this huge fist and wham, (laughs) break (laughs) someone's jaw. But um, he ultimately found knitting needles and wool and Mm -hmm. knitted a scarf for John Purvis, who was the only person he could really have any form of conversation with and gave it to him on Christmas Eve when Purvis was on duty. And it so touched Purvis that tears just came to his eyes. So he hung his head because, my God, a guard cannot show emotion. And Mm -hmm. here he's got tears coming out of his eyes. But then he noticed that Hannibal had hung his head and tears mm-hmm. were dropping down onto his cell floor. Wow. So it, it was um, just, I mean, the stories that I heard from that, from others who came here formerly imprisoned, mm-hmm. um, wardens, one one warden said to me that he had gone to college and studied. This is actually when this prison closed and he became warden at SPSM. Mm-hmm. He said he studied psychology. He studied this, that, you know, it's, he went to university. Right. He said nothing taught him as much as working in prison. He said even the monsters, he used the word monsters, and he said and I don't use that word glibly, the sociopaths Mm -hmm. the psychopaths the serial killers Mm -hmm. some of them you think are like a human monster. He said but everybody has a story Mm-hmm. And you learn more from everybody's, including the monster's stories about mm-hmm. the human condition and what makes people tick or not tick so well Yeah. from working in a prison. And he said, I would do it all over again. Wow. And that, I believe, was John. what John Purvis's you know, uh, attitude was also. So um, just I could go (laughs) on (laughs) and on and on. Um, But uh, I'll just say one thing. When um, Hatch became the warden, Mm -hmm. uh, Warden Hatch, in 1885, Purvis was still here. And Hatch and Purvis really, and a couple of others, believed in rehabilitation that had to be humane. That if you're just going to anger and hurt and whip and beat, um, then you're not going to accomplish anything. Mm 
There was one right. prisoner who was here because his father used to whip the dickens out of him. And hmm. he grew up so angry and hateful that he committed crimes. Wow. So they established quite a school, you know, where they felt that the human mind has to be occupied mm-hmm. and um, that, you know, learning things and thinking and, of course, going out with skills because most of the prisoners had only maximum a third grade education. Right. So um, it goes in cycles, and it depended upon governors. Some said, oh, these pr- this prison treatment is too, you know, too rehabilitative, too humane, and right. stop things. So, and, and today, you know, it, it's still same issues, yeah, <laughs> same yeah. things. Fortunately, the wooden horse <laughs> and yeah. whippings are not part of it but um yeah anyway. solitary confinement i think is still used but it's only temporary you know well yeah. sometimes they're kept in there till trial or you know or if they're considered really um dangerous or, you know violent yeah. mm-hmm. but the difference between darkness is now they keep the light on all the time and right. that has um equally bad psychological and physical effects. So, yeah, I can imagine, because you never get a moment to rest, you know. So. Yeah, and boredom is the other thing, and that was something that um, the old prison had to deal with, because in 1909, mm-hmm. um, the law changed, and they were competing with the non-convict workers and the union started saying they're getting paid, you know, so low Mm -hmm. that we can't earn a living. And that became part of it. And after that, um, in about 1914, the prison farms had to be closed. Uh, It became too expensive. and, And by the 20s, Um, imports from other countries and the factories at the prison could only produce uh, goods for non-profit organizations. Wow. Interesting. So, yeah, and the old prison was condemned in 1914. It was so overcrowded. They had built the annex. They had built the east wings. And still, and the conditions, you know, cleanliness and everything were horrible, tuberculosis, measles, mm-hmm. you name it. Um, but it wasn't until 1934 that they started being able to move prisoners into SPSM three miles north on Cooper Street. Okay, so they built the new facility by that time. Right, and we yeah. could go on the other thing here at the old mm-hmm. prison in the prohibition era oh my god yeah 
the Purple Gang and all right. the gang members were allowed out on the weekends to go to the town brothel. They were allowed <laughs> to bring in bootleg liquor here and the wow. wardens partook and um, just and women in the prison, you know, till wow. they built the women's house of detention in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, just... Just a fascinating, fascinating, rich history. Yeah. Wow, it is amazing. Now, the Armory Arts Grand Gallery is where the old prison is now. I mean, that's what it's called now. It's a. Well, no, the um, this building mm-hmm. that's still standing has the first three. Uh, areas of cell blocks one is the grand gallery that was the very first cell block okay that became overcrowded they built the west end wing which is where i live which um runs perpendicular to the what was called the west wing and has loft apartments then that became overcrowded so they added um, at the end of the West End building, another row that's the whole length of this building that was the annex. Okay. And the fourth floor here became um, part of it was the asylum for the mildly insane. Mm-hmm. Those who were here who really belonged in asylum or those who went slightly nuts while incarcerated here. And then there's a fifth tier that became the infirmary and the um, chapel of the other amazing, amazing reformer, Albert M. Ewart, who taught art taught writing, (laughs) taught Mm -hmm. drawing. He was a jack of all arts. And um, he ultimately, when the new prison was settled, everyone had moved out of here. He -hmm. became the state head in the Department of Corrections of Rehabilitation. Right. Until 1952. Wow. So and that's that's a, that's a whole story. <laughs> yeah, maybe itself. we'll have to have you back on and go into that. So the building itself, where you're in, they, they, you mentioned that they do tours still. How could people find out about tours if they wanted the tour? Um, the old they Jackson should go prison. online and look mm-hmm. up Jackson Historic Prison Tours. Okay. And the name to contact if they want to do that is Steve Rudolph, R-U-D-O-L-P-H. Okay. Well, I'll put that and, information in the show note descriptions for people. Yeah, and as for me, I don't know if you can do this, but I have another book. Of course, the Jacktown book is Absolutely. still selling really well, I'm happy to say. But my latest book, it just came out is called, believe it or not, The Town That Shot Itself in the Foot. 
<laughs> wow. Okay. And they will find out why. And that, between you and me, though it's fictionalized, you know, organizations, names, it does take place in Jackson. Okay. And um, it's uh, basically Armory Arts is um, the artist end of the deal um, did not work out too well thanks okay. to the town <laughs> but the but the thing that did last you know when i first moved here and i started the tours mm-hmm. oh my gosh i was not welcome because they had hoped that art would take over that we could become in effect another ann arbor short of the university Ah, I see. But what people, they love the art, and mm-hmm. we'd visit artists' studios and so forth, and, and I would call it from, you know, prison to art, or I had mm-hmm. different names. Um, but what did survive, what people wanted, was the prison history. Wow. So the art, the artist part of it is really not part of it anymore, huh? Well, there is an artist here who has a studio and teaches classes, and we have a new on-site manager and a few artists who did move in, and she's trying to get them into studios. But the whole original plan... Mm -hmm. um, It it went on for a couple of years, and it just... um, we had promises made and broken, put it that way. But then the okay. other thing is the prison history. Um, it was more of a draw for the public. They yeah. tried to stop me, but it was, yeah. And, and the building itself is, I mean, there the studios, for example, have bars on the windows. Mm-hmm. My apartment, they took them down for whatever reason, uh, but I still have the original, not the glass, but okay. the windows. They, yeah. they go from floor to ceiling. Um, and the the lofts above me mm-hmm. still have the bars on the windows. Wow. Wow. And it's it's interesting how they had to work with fire laws. Mm-hmm. We have sprinklers like all over our seats, okay. <laughs> and you know they compensated. But um, but it was the prison history wow. that brought the tour buses that I brought in, and um, you know I really established the tours, and mm-hmm. then I. I as I said, life changes and COVID and all, but Jim and Steve still do offer the tours here. That's great. I'm going to have to come out and take a tour. So how can they find your book? Is it? Do you have a specific website, or do you want me to direct them to Amazon or some other place? Um, it's on Amazon. The, um, you know, the Jacktown book is on Amazon. It's on um, and all these... It's an ebook too, if people prefer that. Sure. And sure. it is anyway. Um, the uh, and my book, the town that shot itself in the foot, is on mm-hmm. Amazon. They're also on, you know, Goodreads and 
pretty much um, any site. But Amazon is is if that that and Goodreads, I think, are the two sites that people go to most often. And with sure. the Jacktown book, as you know, they can also go to Arcadia. Um, I mean, the History mm-hmm. Press. Right. And okay. Get it there. So I will put. I'll put the links to the book so people can buy both copies in the show note descriptions of the podcast. So a lot of people will listen in their car and then go check out the links when they get to their destination. So been a real pleasure talking to you today, Judy. You just have such a wealth of information. I'll have to have you back on again, and we'll talk about some more of the wonderful history of that old prison there in Jackson. Yeah, and, um, you know, when I moved here on January 5th, 2008, there was a blizzard going on, and I had Uh lived in Miami for 26 years. (laughs) Must have been a big change. Now, when my kids were growing up, we lived in New York, and I, you know, it's not like I was unfamiliar Mm -hmm. with snow, but 26 years is a long time. (laughs) It is a... yeah, it's a Yeah, and I re- It's a change. It is a change and I remember I have an amazing van that I bought used from Enterprise Group in Miami mm-hmm. in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And it's yeah. going to be 24 years old and my mechanic uh keeps saying to me Kelly's imports don't get rid of it. It is, they don't make them like this. You have miles left because I've taken care of it. But I remember I had to go grocery shopping when I moved in here. And I go out Mm -hmm. and the sleet's coming down and all. I remember going over to Mm -hmm. my van and patting it like a horse (laughs) and saying, I hope you're not too cold. I'm sorry to put you through this. <laughs> but uh, we've adjusted both me and the van yeah. <laughs> well it's an absolute pleasure to have you on judy and i definitely hope to have you back on again in the future well thank you so much and i'm sorry for the technical difficulties i will definitely straighten that out sure. no problem so I've been speaking with Judy Gale Krasnow. She is the author of the book Jacktown History and Hard Times at Michigan's First State Prison. She also has a new book out called The Town That Shot Itself in the Foot. So I'll put the link to both of her books in the show note descriptions for you folks. And then if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.